Hello and welcome to Push to Prod. I'm your co-host Cole and I work on UseAlot, a tool to help SaaS companies build revenue through customer success. And I'm your co-host Dan Miller. I'm building a SaaS for the first time and learning as I go. Each episode we chat about all sorts of things to do with the world of starting, growing and operating software businesses. And today it is the 4th of June. It's a grey old winter day here in Australia. But the world is still spinning and we're happy. This is episode number 10. And in today's episode, we're running another push to prod SaaS builder session. But first, I thought we might catch up. It's been a while, Cole. What have you been up to? It has felt like a while, hasn't it, Dan? Now, I know we uh, caught up with uh, Tobias last week or Tobias. Um, but yeah, we haven't probably uh, caught up in a couple of weeks. So hopefully uh, there's some interesting things been happening on both our sides. I'm actually keen to hear what you've been up to. It has been a bit. So, yeah, what have you been doing, mate? Yeah, so, I mean, we've been, head, like, at Uselot, heads down in a bit of, we've got some challenges as a as you do as a new startup. Um, I think the easiest way to describe it is obviously we've built a really, I think, pretty good product that technically could compete against, uh, you know, the big players in the game. We deliberately made that choice. Let's go take on some big, you know, big companies. The real problem there obviously and most people who maybe might be a bit more down the track uh, on this than we are they would recognize that it's it's hard to compete marketing wise when you've got you know competitors raising 30 or 40 million dollars mm. and you know they have tens of thousands of followers connected on LinkedIn every bloody month it seems like um, <clears throat> and so like yeah just there's crickets when it comes to you know leads and stuff it's like really hard to get out there and we're doing some outbound mm. you know deliberate targeted outbound but at the end of the day if our message is we're just like the others then mm. why wouldn't someone else just buy the others and so you know at the end of the day we're looking at it being a bit self-reflective and going okay we've got to find a a, ve- a useful niche to gain some early traction so it doesn't have to be a niche yep. that we want to go in for the rest of our you know software lives but it has to be a niche that the others uh, are not either focusing on it and realistically let's be honest we have to actually be better at them yep. at that niche and so we've got three that we're thinking of and we've been doing a number of user calls with that talking to people um and you know to be honest it's probably a good topic for a, a full podcast to go through some of that yeah good call um yeah so that's been the challenge but it does mean you know head out of the code and sort of more into yeah user chats and brainstorming and a lot of wiki page updates and and just recently now building out some landing pages when we're not designers like we usually contract that so now we're going you know what let's learn that so then it's a whole new thing like learning how our website was put together and getting all that stuff sorted so it's fun it's just i don't know it's tiring because it's not what i'm naturally good at if you know what i mean yeah and and at the same time that's probably exhausting in itself because <laughs> I, I find that sometimes if it's something i'm not comfortable with or i'm not used to it's the activity of doing it is more exhausting than other things and that's why you want to default to the other things you're more comfortable with right <laughs> yeah and it's this again another topic probably for another um, podcast but it is that idea of you know you get those opinions of you know hire what you're not good at and do what you're good at and then other people are like no you know hire what you're good at because you can manage it better and take on the things that you should do as a business you know whatever you, you know whatever that is as a founder you should be you know you should be good at sales even if you don't think you're good at sales you know that type of thing so yeah anyway it's uh it's been interesting but um 
Yeah, definitely some topics coming up. I feel like I'm brewing through a few topics. I like we didn't talk on this, uh, Dan. Yeah. So, what have you been up to? Well, I have been playing around in a serverless world, and hence the reason we're going to get into that topic today. It's been a bit of fun. Was interested in just um you know exposing myself a bit more to that that world and and getting my my teeth into it, getting my fingers into it. So I went around and I started playing around with some Lambda functions in AWS and playing around with their API framework and you know learning a bit of that that and but what it's what it's given me it's given me a bit more insight into today's topic and like I said earlier I thought today we might be continuing our push to prod SaaS builder sessions you know the guide to understanding options for building and running and growing your software as a service so the topic we thought we'd get into today was about um opening up the the back end and looking at all those infrastructure pieces that make production possible, aka hosting, Cole. That's that's what I've been up to. So I thought I'd get into that, eh? Yeah, sounds good. So what parts of hosting do we want to cover? We obviously uh, there's a there's a number of them. Oh mate, it's infinite. So I thought let's let's zero in here on the topic today. Let's get into the details of um really serverless and in particular functions as a service. That's where I thought we'd start. The funny thing here, hopefully uh, people will recognise, I think we're both learning this stuff. Yeah, that's <laughs> so right. We've been in software for, I think we're both decades now. Yep. Um, I think we're both comfortable, if I can speak for you too, at monolithic type development and backend stuff. So like I've obviously done a lot of DevOps in terms of setting up some of these things, uh, not so much on the function side. So this is an interesting topic for me. And I'm, I'll admit I'm probably going to be asking more questions and giving answers here. So it's going to be an uh, interesting one. And I'm unashamedly telling everyone that I actually am learning on the go. So, but the good thing about it is everything I'm learning, I'm trying to give back through the podcast here. So hopefully you get a bit of value from it listening in today. So let's start with the main question. What is serverless? Well, it's a category or group of options, which basically means, you know, you, the developer, you don't have to do anything at all with the backend infrastructure other than just use it. So there's no configuring, no monitoring, no scaling, no spinning up and down, just pure joyful usage. And it's, I reckon it's absolute bliss, well, on paper from a dev point of view. The reality, maybe not so much the case. That's not maybe my experience. That's what, that was going to be my question, Dan, was, yeah, how, how much is that reality, I guess? Yeah, we'll find out, eh? <laughs> um, look, the serverless provider in this case, they take care of everything, all the details in the background for you, and you just use it. And you've got a few options up your sleeve there um, when it comes to serverless. Within it, within that category itself, there's actually so many different choices to go through. And we'll mention them here, eh? just a bit of a list. Um, the two main ones that are of immediate relevance to SaaS builders, I reckon, are serverless functions and serverless databases. Right. So that's sort of pretty much covering then your whole, your whole back end and what your front end clients probably need to talk to, I guess, in some sense. Yep. Okay. That makes sense. Yep. Yeah, all the stuff really that your front end's interacting with to get its job done. And if you look at functions as a service or FAS as sometimes people call them, that's the most well-known form of serverless computing and that that allows you to write and deploy code in the form of functions that you would ordinarily previously on a monolith, you would actually have them in your server code and you'd have your, your massive code base and you'd, you know, you'd modularize, modularize that of course but your functions would be things that you could call at any points in time, whether directly using within your server itself or, you know, accessing it through your API, through your gateway um, to your client. And some of the more popular FAS platforms that would people would might be familiar with, or if you're not, here they are. You've got AWS Lambda, Google Cloud Functions. You've got IBM Cloud Functions. Not that I've used that one. 
That one sounds boring. Yep. <laughs> uh, Microsoft Azure functions, Oracle functions. As you can see, all the big names are getting into it. And then you got the more um, recent ones, Netlify functions, Vercel functions, Cloudflare workers, and then you've got Dino Deploy and Fly.io. That's the that's the main list that are out. There's plenty more, but that's that's the big ones that show up. And so with these ones, Dan, do you know um, like what type of languages do you use? deploying on these guys are they you know pretty obvious with something like azure is going to be is that .net code do you know or is that going to be you know everything like how do you split this up it definitely depends on the platform provider um you can guarantee that over in um, microsoft land there'll be a, a bend towards the microsoft stack you know the c-sharp stuff and all that but they also do support um you know some of other categories they do support node and things like that i was playing around with aws lambda in the last week and you know they've got Python on there. You could pick Node. You can pick other other languages. Um, that they've got a fair few to choose from, which is that's the that's the one of the the benefits there. And the other category, I guess we were just talking about, was serverless databases. Um, that's a whole topic on its own, <laughs> so we'll probably cover that in a, another episode. But yeah, generally, what that is is you know rather than you hosting a you know a relational database management system or a full you know some type of full managed database solution on your own infrastructure, again you're spinning up a database-like service on some cloud provider, um, which has taken care of all that. Um, hopefully, you know that's the usage of it is all on demand and only charged for the actual usage that you're actually getting out of it. So we thought we started looking at this and going to cover both in this episode, but we thought to keep them a bit shorter and sweeter, we're going to do the serverless DB one on our next episode of uh, the Builder series. So we'll leave that one and we'll just focus on functions. Cool. And just before we get into the functions, there are like a few others, but we won't get into the details today. You know, there's serverless messaging and eventing. You could do serverless file storage and processing. Uh, you get serverless analytics, serverless machine learning. So the concept is really the same. It's somebody else is running that server service in the background and you you just consume it, most likely through APIs. How would a developer, you know, go out and use one of these, I guess, service, serverless functions or serverless function providers? Well, this one's hot off the, off the press because I have been doing it. Um, <laughs> picture yourself, you know, picture a function that you would typically run in your server layer. So instead of having that function sitting alongside many other functions within a monolith backend, instead you'll take a specific function, just one of them by itself, and you'll you, as long as that's an isolated or an atomic piece of code that could just work on its own with its own inputs, does its own processing and produces outputs, you'll take that function and you'll deploy that onto your FAS provider. And then you'll connect it up with your app via an API. And it goes like this. You'll... um. You write the function. It serves a specific purpose within the code. Um, you'll, define, you'll define an event that will trigger the cloud service provider to execute that function. For example, there might just be some sort of you know HTTP request or, or a REST API that calls it. And that's the event that triggers it. And when it does trigger it, again, um, with that, if we continue that HTTP request example, an end user might click something on the front end in the app, right? And then the app goes, excellent, that's the, that's the trigger for me to then send that HTTP request down to the provider. It'll go into the gateway and that will trigger the event. What that does then, the function gets executed by the FAS provider and first it'll check you know, if an instance of the function is already running. And if so, it'll just use that. If not, it'll spin one up pretty, pretty quick actually. The latency is actually pretty small. And then obviously if you 
picture a traditional function, it'll do its thing, it'll do its processing, and it'll produce some output. And then the way you've structured and built it, it'll send that uh, that output back to the client application. It could be just a simple acknowledgement to say, yes, it was a success, or it could be, here's the payload that I finished processing for you and you need to do something with it now and consume it. And, you know, following that example from before, that you know, the user who did the clicking, they'll see the result of that executed function inside the app, but they won't know it's been done from a serverless point of view. But you, the developer, do. And that's really the basics of it, how it works. And so when you're doing this, and I'm just asking you questions off the top of my head here. Yeah, sure. <laughs> what, how, obviously, the number of functions that you would end up deploying is totally dependent on the type of product you're building. But I could imagine if you went full serverless here and got rid of the server, that for, you know, there's a lot of, lot of functions here that could be. Oh, my gosh. This is something I haven't got my head around yet, but you are absolutely correct. I did it on a real sort of a dinky little scenario, right? I basically... I spun up um, the front end of a, of a marketing site and I just created a contact form, traditional contact form. Now, normally you could just go and you could actually just buy an off-the-shelf service these days and plug that in and run your contact form and it'll send your emails to you. But I decided, all right, here's a good opportunity for me to build the serverless function here. So I'll do it and I built it and that was fine. But I'm thinking to myself, my gosh, if I had to do that for just one thing and it took me that long <laughs> and that much, that much effort, imagine what it's going to take to do an entire backend. So yeah, you're right. That's probably a bit of a downside. <laughs> you might only be originally using these for functions that you expect need this features, which are like scaling, mm. um, you know, high volume, things like that, or, or potentially really fast execution mm. because you want to vertically, uh, horizontally or vertically scale this thing up. So I guess you don't have to, you probably don't have to go full, you know, full everything if you don't have to you could actually combine some of this and that's what i've done in the past so we could probably talk a little bit about that but that probably does segue into you know obviously these things are supposed to scale because they're on the cloud so you know how does that work you hit the nail on the head there um the scaling is probably the benefit that you'd probably look for functions which at any point in time could be widely variable there'd be there'd be use cases to be put into your serverless function scenario so what the what the fas provider does in those scenarios so they've got a few options up their sleeves for scaling, they could do vertical scaling and that is where they increase the CPU or the RAM resource allocation to the function. And this is the case, you know, for a complicated function that is very heavy on processing requirements. Um, or you've got the horizontal scaling where you just got a lot of requests coming in. So you might end up having multiple instances of functions that run side by side and there's lots of them happening all at once. Uh, and that might be if there's a burst of activity and lots of separate requests come in from different clients all at once, and you need to smooth that out and handle that simultaneously. Um, so what the what the service provider then can do is deal with that very very fast in the background, and that's probably one of the benefits of it. They they set up their infrastructure in such a way that it can detect that and handle that situation, and then scale up very fast or scale horizontally very fast for you, and then spin that down again. Um, yeah, and that's it'll get that get itself back to an idle state. That's that's really how it deals with the scaling part of it, and that's probably one of the reasons why you might use it. Yeah, that's and I imagine obviously you just said it scales down, goes idle, so then hopefully you're not paying for it at that point in time. That's the interesting part. I, I did look in a little bit into about how you do get charged, how they pay, how they how you pay for um, functions as a service, and it's a pretty interesting pricing model. There's a few. There's invocation based pricing that's every time you invoke the function right 
um, you get charged based on the number of times that that function gets invoked or executed. Is that is that like what Twitter's doing with their API now? Ah, oh, that's that? right, and that's why it's forty two thousand dollars a you know a month to use it. <laughs> it's crazy, but in this case, um, each time a function gets triggered, uh, that's whether it's in response to an event or, or the direct API call. That's an invocation, and the cost is typically calculated per invocation. You know, it can vary depending on certain factors such as how long the thing runs for, how much memory memory gets allocated to it, and how much network traffic's going on as a result of that. But we use an example here. Like let's let's say you got a silly example. Say um say you got a serverless function that's invoked say one hundred times a month, and the provider is charging you one cent per invocation, then you'd be charged one dollar for all the invocations that month. But in reality, it's probably a lot cheaper than that. Now, they're probably charging something more like, you know, 0.00001 cents per invocation. But that was a silly example for you. And do those ones, did you see with that, because you were mentioning just then around, you know, there is some dependent, you know, factors around execution time, memory allocation. What happens if you go over that? Is that a different pricing structure, do you find, or it just like kills your function? Um, well, they do have a different form of pricing as well, which could get, um, which could kill you depending on who you go with. <laughs> um, th then you've got execution time based pricing, right? So that's the model where they take into account the duration that it takes for your function to complete. Um, some providers do charge based on the time it takes for the function to run. So, and that's typically measured in increments of milliseconds. Uh, the pricing, you know, it may differ based on the allocated memory again and again, higher memory configurations or CPU. But if you if you take that silly example I had before, uh, this, time, this time say your function runs for 500 milliseconds and the provider's pricing is, you know, again, one cent per millisecond. Well, on the base tier, if you've got a basic allocation of say 128 megs of memory, that'd cost you about five bucks if you're doing 500 milliseconds of worth. So again, you could get stung there um you gotta watch out <laughs> yeah they do have caps though i know i know that some of them all have caps to say your function if you're running a serverless function it's got a cap that it has to run within a certain period of time if you go beyond that if your function's really heavy and it's got a lot of processing they'll just cut you off yeah. so you gotta that's, design yeah and that's that's a good safety mechanism then to make sure that yeah you're not actually going to get stung either and neither are they yeah and it's pretty handy actually it causes you to think uh in you know in units as opposed to monolithic giant blocks which is you know, always a good practice and then you got this so i mean i can cover some other ones here um we looked at this as memory-based pricing so again it's i guess it's similar a little bit to the execution one but now we're just looking at not so much time but how much memory this entire thing is consuming as it runs um you know and you know cloud providers generally charge based on sort of memory size could be in gigabyte gigabytes or gigabits probably who knows uh, would be gigabytes um allocated to run that function um and it obviously correlates a lot with the cpu as well and networking capabilities of that function so you know it's basically you not so much worrying about the time but going well how much grunt you know whatever memory cpu do i need for this particular thing and I, i'd rather get charged on that bit complex to work that one out so we didn't do any uh, examples on that one Next one's happy. This is this is probably why a lot of people might find themselves getting into um, serverless in the first case. Free tier, right? Uh, most of the cloud providers, for example, Netlify and Vercel, they've got um, a free tier, so you can get in there and play around and experiment. You can test things out um, without incurring any costs, and they they typically offer a certain amount of free invocations or free execution times per month. Um, another one that they do provide 
is the ability to provide bursting capabilities. So this is where, you know, briefly they can scale up and handle huge spikes in your traffic and then, then you won't actually incur any additional costs. And that's pretty nice because most of the time you've got a flat baseline. It, it, occasionally you'll get these peaks, but then, I don't know, maybe you'll go and uh, get first placed on Product Hunt and, and suddenly everyone wants to use your your thing. That Then you'll get a massive burst in traffic and that could actually destroy your wallet if you're not careful. So there are providers out there that offer free bursting for you. So look for those. That's always good. I've a little bit of experience, not so much with serverless, but I know with AWS's um, instance types, it's always been this debate for us, at least at the scale we run at, that it's like, do we, I'll probably get a bit technical here, but you've got the T instances and then you've got like the M instances and they're, they're both general purpose instances, whereas the T's burst and the M's are just like, well, as far as I understood, a fairly standard. Um but yeah, so, but the T's are cheaper. So it's always this thing is like, uh, I've been finding that, yeah, if you do get the right scale and you can have a cheaper T instance, but it can burst up memory and CPU up a lot higher than the equivalent, you know, cost that you'd be paying if you had to, you know, pay for that whole thing on an M instance. So yeah, I mean, that bursting functionality is obviously not just serverless, but it is definitely one of these benefits you get from cloud providers over just running this stuff yourself. It's nice that they're actually considering it because in the early days, people were getting stung with that for sure. And speaking of getting stung, there actually are some additional charges you've got to watch out for. They, they, might, they might lure you in with the free tier, but you've got to be mindful. They might also then start charging you separately for things like logging and monitoring and debugging. Uh, you know, they might have separate charges. So watch out for that one. Yeah, well, that's good. So let's run through. So that's sort of the basics, I guess, of, you know, what it is, what the types, how you would actually, you know, get charged, how you'd sort of, why you would actually call a serverless function in the first place. Um, it'd be interesting to run through what we think are some of the examples, I guess, or use cases for why you'd use it at all. And I think we sort of covered it a little bit, just some of the chats. But, um, yeah, what did you find in your uh, investigations here, Dan? I'll let you run through some of the lists and I'll, I'll come in when I find the ones that I've used, I guess. Yeah, cool. Well, some of them, they do border here on actual different services themselves. But if you just want to think in the world of serverless and some of the use cases for FAS, one of them might be some common um, web and mobile application backend functions that you find yourself doing. You know, For example, user authentication or data processing or managing file uploads. That's definitely a use case for it. I can see, it, uh, for example, if you just had... Um, the need to do some heavy file processing, you could actually send that through to your serverless and it could have the necessary resources it does to deal with that for you. Um, you don't have to worry about tuning your own application server to deal with that. You just hand that off to the serverless and let it deal with it. Um, another one might be just asynchronous processing. This is, for example, if you've got a need to transcode some videos or do some batch processing of you know uploaded images, that's again another case where you can hand that off to a serverless job and say, there you go, you deal with that. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to know about the the requirements in the background of my my server configuration. I'll let someone else deal with that. And do you know? Um, would you be building those functions yourself? Do you think, or have you seen in your investigation here? Did you see, um, I guess, serverless function providers that allow you to do that? You know, like can I go out and buy a not only just a serverless function, but one that's already built to do say video transcoding? There probably are out there. I didn't come across them. I, the ones that I really came across here were just the raw functions as a service providers which sort of said we'll give you the ability yeah you've got to write the you've got to write the logic or find the library to use it yep that makes sense yep what else are some of the use cases you got you know webhooks and api extensions image we mentioned this before like image and media processing 
chatbots is an interesting one. Um, you could actually run yourself a nice little chatbot in the background or some sort of conversational interface using a serverless function. I think um, out of those, like I think the webhooks and particular APIs are interesting too, because when you go back to one of our first use cases back there, we talked about functions are really useful when you're not like when you're going to get a high load or maybe like variable load. And obviously with things like webhooks and API, you're basically giving control to someone else now. It's not even your browser, like it's fine. You can almost control when your browser, like if you build a client, like a front end, you can sort of control how much it talks to your back end, even if you had hundreds of users. But what you can't control is someone setting up a machine and um, firing API requests into you. Or even like one of the good use cases here is email coming in like if you if you process incoming email you don't know how often someone's going to email that endpoint and so pushing that off to one of these functions to do that heavy lifting even storing it somewhere else and then your your back end is able to then do this at, at a time when it's able to do it so i think that webhooks api ones are, to me is a very good use case for this stuff straight out and that one you mentioned email is what i used in my little investigations there i, I built basically a you know a contact form and you don't you don't actually know how often that's going to get used so you don't want to be paying for that forever right but if you go and build yourself um a serverless function it can sit there and idle in the back also it can sit there and just go to sleep in the background and then on the odd occasion that some random person contacts you through their form bang up goes your uh, your serverless function it spins up it does its job sends the email back to your your back end or your provider that you need to deal with and then it winds itself down so that's another use case for it for sure um, what else? You got a few things there, like you know, you could do Internet of Things, data processing. You could deal with web scraping. You could deal with uh, data pipelines and workflows, geolocation, mapping services. Definitely, have used that before. Uh, geocoding uh, addresses, so you can sit there and have an endpoint where you get an address and you can just hit this endpoint, get the lat long, or vice versa. So yeah, very good use case for it. You know, beyond these, you can you can string together a whole bunch of complex orchestrations if you want to. You could sort of say, you know, you've got a, a four or five step process and each one of those is a serverless function in itself. So you'll provide the input at the start and then, you know, function one will do its thing, provide its output to function two, et cetera. And you can chain that along. Uh, you know, for an example, there you could do a, some sort of user sign up, which triggers a DB update, which then triggers the welcome email. That's a good example there. So, yeah. You know, if you obviously if you build a microservice architecture, you're heavily using this, but I guess you don't have to. You can do that sort of combination of, you know, monolith, like we said before, and using these functions in that, some of these use cases in a smart way. So you can sort of dip your toes in. Absolutely. You know, make your full product a little bit more resilient to some of this, you know, asynchronous or <laughs> random load type events that might come in. Uh, but you don't have to worry too much about re-architecting your whole product to go microservice. And I reckon that'd be a great place for a SaaS builder to actually just dip your toes in the water there. Um, you know, big architectural decisions are, are they have huge ramifications for you. And if you've already gone down in one direction, changing your, your architecture for your system <laughs> is probably a, a, a non-starter. So maybe... Maybe there might be certain use cases in your world where you could say, okay, great. That one there, that function that I know I need to provide occasionally or that I, I it's quite got a high lot of variability into how um, how much scale it needs. I Maybe I'll try that in a serverless function environment and see how that works. Yeah, for sure. On the other side, um, I don't know if you've heard, but uh, you know Basecamp, the the software platform Basecamp. Now they, they did build themselves a microservices architecture 
And then they decided after a few years, now they're on, they're on a scale way beyond whatever ever of, you, know, you and I might be thinking of, they decided that it just costs them too much money. It's too expensive. So they're going back to away from the serverless architecture and more into in-house again. So it was interesting to see that. So Yeah, and there's more tech. And I think that, I mean, they've obviously built um, some tooling around that, not only in the, obviously the Rails world, but also just in general to allow you to move some of the, and, that, you know, it's not just them. There is other technology out there that allows you to take what effectively is cloud-based architectures and run them on your own set of servers. So I think... That potential, you know, it feels like I saw a tweet about this. I should have grabbed it. Um, someone else in the building public world was almost doing the same thing. Uh, probably not not their scale, but bringing it back in back to bare metal. Which, yeah, I don't know. It's yeah, it, it's sort of not um, PC these days to do that. I reckon one of the benefits, one of the reasons why you would think about it, is the ability to move fast and just experiment with things. So say say you and I, or say we're just mucking around one day, and we say to ourselves, I think we should build something else that is related to you know what we're involved in i, I don't want to i don't want to include that in my current SaaS's back-end infrastructure i don't want to change the architecture of what i'm doing i just want to run an experiment so i'll go spin something up i'll create a serverless function i'll connect to it i'll, I'll provide the little front end that i'll whatever it is that is going to be that experiment connect them all up try it out away you go you could actually spin something really fast in that model and you could do lots of experiments and quite often, I reckon. So that's where I think this would shine for sure, people that want to move fast. So I guess what are the other things that you need to consider uh, in relation to, you know, going a full fat, not just a full sort of fast environment, but just using functions in general? Like one of them we talked about was this cold start concept and you mentioned it was quite fast in your test stuffs. Yeah, it's actually not bad. Yeah, so what like what are you sort of seeing there? Is that something that you can control? Like if you pay more, it can come up quicker or is it just dependent on the, the service cloud provider? That I don't know the answer to, but I do know that what I have seen is actually pretty fast. Like the latency, and that's something you do need to consider, is the time it takes for when your function goes to sleep, how long it takes for the thing to then wake up once it's triggered. You know, if it's been if it's been there for a few days, it's been doing nothing and it's in sleep mode, all of a sudden your first event comes along and it has a little bit of time to get in there. But that that what I've observed and what I've read in a lot of the providers in the is in the form of milliseconds. So it's actually not too bad. I suspect, don't quote me on this, but um You'd probably be able to pay more, I reckon, to get that running as a bit of a warm start. So, yeah. And I'm sure you could architect certain things yourself behind the scenes to occasionally send a bit of a heartbeat to things just to sort of say, don't go to, you know, I, I'm needing you. I know I'm going to need you around these times, so stay awake. <laughs> yeah, start start waking up at 5.30 in the morning or something like I am, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then obviously concurrency limits is another one um, that, conscious of how many you might have to be running you know simultaneously um and i guess that would depend a little bit on you know the provider and, and how much that's going to cost and things like that yeah some of them cap you for sure do they yeah or potentially even running different and we didn't get too much into sort of this edge computing concept but running these functions in different regions around the world so therefore you know your australian clients are hitting things close and your us ones are hitting functions that are actually located in data centers close to them so i guess that's one of the benefits here um not only being concurrent across you know needing it for volume but also just regionally yeah i reckon that's actually a good one that we could spin off into another topic cole but for sure edge functions that's the concept where you know people place their in their resources 
close as close as possible to where the consumers are or the clients are using it. And in this case, some of these providers actually will limit you. They'll cap you and they'll say, you're only allowed to have up to X number of instances in this region. Beyond that, you're going to get throttled. So you got to watch out for that. Um, speaking of getting throttled, there is the timeout. And I mentioned it earlier. That's the time within which your function must complete before the provider says, nah, game over. And they put a stop to it. They will let your function run up to a certain amount of time and then they'll just cut it off. So you got to be careful about what, how much you put into these functions. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah, and the good thing is, I mean, realistically, let's be honest, that's what you should be doing in the web world anyway. Most of your controllers and endpoints and your normal SaaS should be quite fast as well. Well, there were, you know, even though we've mentioned some of the things to watch out for, there are some benefits. And we mentioned earlier, one of them is cost. You only actually pay for the usage. So you're not paying a per month fee to every single month have the access to the server what you're doing is you're paying a fee for the amount of time you just use it so if you've got something running in your SaaS that you're hardly ever using it but occasionally you do it's probably not a bad um, economy of scale there you could just sort of say great i'm, I'm only getting i'm only paying about a dollar a month for, to have all these functions running as opposed to having seven dollars a month to have the entire server platform as a service running or uh, even more if you're hiring your own infrastructure. So that's a possibility there. Yeah, and especially for us, you know, early stage, building public people, whatever, you know, like Microsas, you know, whatever you want to call these people, in, our indie hackers. You know, if you've got clients, you tend to, the first few clients, they tend to be fairly regional. They, they're around you. So being able to have this thing basically off for, you know, half the day because everyone's asleep, I think it's a massive benefit. And, the, and one other one of the benefits here, you've got is scalability. So that's the automation where your service provider, they'll, they'll just spin things up for you. Like I said earlier, horizontal or vertical scale. They'll, they'll, they'll take care of that in the background as much as you need to, and you don't have to think about it. And I think I like that a lot, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, and that, that lends itself to the other one, which is productivity. And again, you can deploy code without needing to manage servers and it accelerates your delivery cycle. You can go fast there. So, Yeah, especially if you're working in one of those larger environments where it's great to be able to build up a little web app. But yeah, if you need to talk to IT and this and that and that to get it deployed, um, I can see where these things come, uh, can speed that up. Some of these lead to some challenges. And I guess I'm going to just jump in on that one because the productivity is good. But on the negative side... How do, how do you go about developing? Now, you know, it used to be that, you know, you'd get your IDE up, you got your monolith, you deploy your environment locally, you know, you're running the whole thing on your dev machine, you know, so you can you can do everything there. Now you've moved everything to a cloud provider. What happens if I've got five devs working? What are they working off? Yeah, challenging. This is what I saw. So I built myself in my own repository on my local machine. I had, you know, an, a new package in my repository. So then what I did, I started writing the code for the function with, for the FAS that's there. And it, it occurred to me very fast. I went, hang on a second. If I want to then run this through an automated testing chain, or if I want to then figure out a way to then promote this through to different environments, like, you know, staging, test, you know, sorry, start from the beginning, dev, test, staging, provide, something like that. That's going to be a bit challenging. It's not the normal thing there. You can't just sort of just grab your entire block, promote it and run. You can't just do that. <laughs> so what you've got to do is you've actually got to then, you can build it locally and then you've got to deploy it. And you can either do that manually or you can run that through an automated deployment chain. Um, but then what that does, it lands over in your FAS provider. And then you've got to build your own environments in there as well. So it's becoming a bit more complicated. 
um, now to actually chain things together. Mm-hmm. And expensive potentially if you've got a lot of devs and they've all got their own versions, different branches, they're working on different features. Yeah, there's no much. It's not just the same as you would with with a, a single repository base where you're all working together, you know, and you'll, you know, you'll git pull and you'll grab whatever's the latest. Sorry, you know, it's just not the same. <laughs> That's the thing. And I have heard, um, now I'm not an expert at this and hopefully people can correct us if I'm wrong or if they've got, if I'm right, but don't, I'm not saying it correctly. But I know there is some... <clears throat> frameworks like serverless for example i think it's called which can also help you run some of it i think locally as well and sort of like if it's a node environment it can execute some things locally um to speed up that cycle because obviously pushing it up into the cloud every time just to get a little piece of feedback um yeah that starts becoming very slow for a developer so i know there is tools around this and things like that but it is definitely something to think about i did see that with aws you can actually do a simulated run on your local machine that's for sure that is possible but but again it starts again you're adding to the complexity aren't you because you're adding more and more things into your world that you're needing to deal with yeah um some of the other challenges i thought about straight away um I mentioned it before is that that whole concept of testing that's going to make it a bit more complex but the the two that really got me were the uh the lack of control and the the, the form of security again i mentioned this in the last episode but you're at the beholden or you're beholden to whatever the service provider says if they if they decide that this is how it's going to work well that's how it's going to work you've got no choice all you're providing it is, is a function and that's it so if they have issues in the way that um, there's some sort of outage or if there's some sort of security issue or there's some sort of fault on their side, you've got zero control. <laughs> I guess that's a benefit maybe going with the big providers because if you, they've got a problem, most of the internet will have a problem. That's been my view of things. It's like, you know, if, uh, if AWS goes down, well, probably half the internet does. So, yeah, that's <laughs> <yeah>. true. <laughs> but no, it is it is true. Like you are always handing that over Um you know, I know with AWS, they have the, uh, what's it called, the shared responsibility model, which is them saying, hey, we are going to commit to, you know, ensuring our infrastructure is X, Y, Z, you know, uh, in terms of reliability and performance, security, things like that. But then you have to do all the other stuff. So it's just knowing where those lines are and being comfortable with that risk, basically. The last one is just vendor lock-in, really. So once you start getting in there and you're hooking yourself in and, you, and all these connections are being made to your architecture, the tentacles are around you. You are in. <laughs> it's pretty hard to extrapolate yourself from that. So, yeah. Yeah, it's like that benefit. Like that's why Kubernetes took off there for a bit in terms of not so much serverless functions, but, you know, because initially the whole goal was, oh, I can run Kubernetes anywhere and put it on any cloud provider and all that. But then you had this other take of people going, hang on, if I go cloud native, it became this cloud native concept, which is like I am I'm using 100% AWS components and I get these benefits. And so but then... Yes, you're locked in to AWS to pull that out and go to Azure. Oh, that's going to hurt. So, yeah. It's, uh, but as more of these, like I said, as more as these um, functions as a service have come around, there is more of these tooling that it makes a lot more portable across, especially when, again, I'm not a Node guy, but look, let's be honest, Node's everywhere now and you'd be dumb not to start on that if you're building stuff. It's like it's becoming a lot easier to transition these across, I think, as far as I could see. And so my next SaaS, even though I've just started one, but not really, because um, it was a couple of years ago we started writing it, I would probably consider that, you know, and really consider some of these new ways of deploying. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Like I said, 
I, I like the uh, the ability to just do things fast with it. It wasn't my initial experience in the last few days. I, you know, there's a learning curve, but with that learning curve, it disappears pretty fast. Once you get your head over the concepts and you sort of go, oh, okay, great. I know how this works now. I can see yourself moving a bit faster for the next one and the next one and the next one. Um, but again, it's a, it's a whole paradigm switch. It's fine. And if you, if, if you're, um, if, if this is what you started learning with, when you started building and coding, you know, all, all the power to you, you're actually just, you're up and running and you know what you're doing. So yeah, not too bad. Yeah, it's really good. And I, like I've already seen, like I said, the, the last couple of years, I reckon maybe a handful of years at the most, this has become so much more mature than where it was, you know, even just five years ago. So yeah, um, no, excited to, to test it out. Like um, there's a few other little sort of side projects that I've been thinking about. So definitely want to check out some of these new node ones in Vercel and deploying to that stuff. Cause certainly some of the frameworks, even that wrap them um, just make it so fast to get going these days. Yeah, absolutely. It's worthwhile trying out. I, I, I'd encourage it. I had a bit of fun. I enjoyed the experience. I'd use them again. Um, I, I wouldn't, I'm like, I'm probably like you. I still like the whole monolith style. That's uh, just what I'm used to, but I'm quite comfortable now, even over the last few days of just playing around that I'd go, yeah, this is fine. I get it. I get the concept. It's, it's logical to me. It makes perfect sense. And if I want to just move fast and muck around, I would probably really consider this now for sure. Mm. Oh, cool. Uh, well, we'll, uh, we'll uh, update listeners uh, maybe six months down the track if we've started using more of these things. <laughs> Speaking of listeners, like if you've got experience with serverless and with functions as a service yourself and you've got some ideas or some questions and some thoughts, shout out, let, let us know. Um, you can get in touch with us via push to prod pod at gmail.com and we're also at push to prod pod on Twitter. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, but yeah, any type of topic that you want us to get into. I think the next, like I said, the next couple of weeks we might start talking a little bit about... Um, you know, my, the challenges around marketing and niching and positioning and product again. But also a topic that I just talked to Dan earlier about was should developer or founder dev founders or technical founders start learning a different skill set such as design or, or UX? You know, can you learn it if you're a tech head? Can you learn to actually be a good designer? I, I want to challenge that uh, in a positive way. <laughs> so that would be interesting. I can't wait. Yeah, I can't wait for that episode, Cole. That's going to be fun, actually. I'm really looking forward to that one. Yeah. Yeah, no, all good. Anyway, uh, hopefully uh, people enjoyed this episode and us try to sort of fumble our way through learning um, new you know, functions as a service. I think we both learned something here, Dan, so that was really good. And absolutely, and don't forget, you can also uh, catch us on Twitter. I'm Mr. Dan Miller and... And I'm at Gummo. And until next time, Dan. Nice one. Well, thanks, Cole. It's been awesome chatting again. As usual, we'll talk to you again next time. Thanks, folks. We'll see you then.